I'm very excited to welcome everybody to the 20th Annual Rappaport Memorial Lecture. I want to introduce Dr. Sam Rappaport. Good evening. My name is Sam Rappaport. On behalf of my wife, Sandra, my sister, our family, I welcome you to the annual Rappaport Family Memorial Lecture at Drisha. This is our 20th annual Rappaport Family Memorial Lecture. As Doris Diamond said, the lecture series was founded in honor of my father, David Rappaport. Over the years, following the passing of Sandra's parents, Gabriel Sharon and Rebecca Sharon, and my mother, Rose Rappaport, this series has become a vehicle for honoring their collective memories. My father's Hebrew name was Pesach David, and reflecting on my father's name, Rabbi Silver, the dean and founder of Risha, that it would be an appropriate honor for my father's memory if we could have a Pesach-themed lecture. And so for the 20 past years, we have been fortunate and have eagerly looked forward to learn new insights into the holiday of Pesach from each of our Rappaport Memorial Lectures. My parents were always devoted to Jewish education. My mother was president of the Jewish Day School in Havana, and my father was on its board of directors. In my curiosity as a child, I remember asking my father, Oh, he got learning in Yiddishkeit. My father grew up in Guantanamo, Cuba, which was not a bastion of Jewish life. The story of his Jewish education is emblematic of Jewish survival in diaspora, and I thought that this evening I would share that story with you. My grandfather, David Yankel, landed in Cuba in 1923. He had been a shoichet, a ritual slaughterer, cattle trader, and butcher in Romania. He stopped in Cuba on his way to North America where he planned to practice his trade. His boat landed in Guantanamo, which was Cuba's most eastern port. And he and his shift brother, his traveling buddy, enticed by Cuba's mild, warm climate, decided to stay there and travel no further. And together, they started the general store in Guantanamo. Within a few months, their families followed, and so my father and his siblings and my grandmother lived in Guantanamo, Cuba. According to the story, one day Maize de Yanko went to Guantanamo docks to pick up a shipment of merchandise for his store. And while the goods were being offloaded, a young man who was dressed in typical Jewish garb stepped off the boat. As you might imagine, this was not a typical passenger on a Cuba-bound ship in the 1920s. And so Zayde Yanko greeted him. They struck up a conversation in Yiddish. Zayde Yanko asked the young man if he had a place to stay. When the man replied that he did not, my grandfather took him home. And for the next 10 years, this young man lived in my grandparents' home and served as the lehrer, the, the, the teacher for Yiddishkeit for my father and his siblings. And that's how my father and his siblings got a Jewish education in Galut in the 1920s. For much of our continuing education, Sandra and I have to thank Rabbi David Silber, who is the dean and founder of Grisha. Rabbi Silber is not only our teacher, but he's an ardent supporter of this lecture series, and for that we thank him. I would also like to thank Breach's administrators, Aaron Kohler, Shira Heck Kohler, and Jehudas Eisenberg, for helping to organize tonight's lecture. And I thank my home synagogue, Kehilai Gishur, for providing the venue. This year's annual Rappaport Family Memorial Lecture is Dr. Sarit Katan Gribitz. Dr. Gribitz teaches rabbinic literature and Jewish studies at Fordham University. She received her doctorate from Princeton University, was a Fulbright Fellow at the Hebrew University, and a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard and at the Jewish Theological Seminary. The title of Dr. Gribitz's lecture is The Pesach Seder, How to Become a Family Affair. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Gribitz. Good evening, everyone. I want to start by expressing my gratitude to Sandra and to Sam Rappaport and the whole Rappaport family, and also to Jerisha and Aaron and Yehudis and me for giving me the honor of sharing some words of Torah in honor and memory of your parents. Today's talk is all about the intersection of Pesach and family stories, and so it's a privilege for me to be able to share that in a place that is meant to honor your family. And I want to thank all of you for being here tonight and for learning together with me this evening as we prepare to celebrate Pesach in a few weeks. Every year when we gather for our seders, we read about an ancient seder. And so that's where I want to start, with this ancient seder that we read. And this is the story. 
מעשה ברבי אליעזר, ברבי יהושע, ברבי אלעזר בן עזריה, ורבי עקיבא, ורבי טרפון, שהיו מסובים בבני ברק, והיו מספרים ביציאת מצרים כל אותו הלילה, עד שבאו תלמידיהם ואמרו להם, רבותינו, הגיע זמן קריאת שמע של שחרית. There's a story. The story involves five different rabbis, Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Terfon. And they're all reclining at their seder in Bnei Brak, and they're telling about Yitziat Mitzrayim the entire night until their students come to them and tell them, guys, it's time to say the morning Shema. So I want to start with a series of questions, and I hope you'll help me in answering them. Who's at the seder? Rabbis. Who's not at the Seder? Hold on, hold on. Raise your hand. I can't hear you all at once. Their wives. Who else? Their children, their family, their students. What are they doing? They're hiding out. Okay, that's great. And what are they spending their time doing? They're learning. What's missing? What are they not doing in this story? They're not eating. They're not praying. They might be having all of these things, but they're not mentioned, right? And that's important. We actually don't know who was at the Seder. We only know the people who are mentioned in the text as being part of the Seder. We don't know everything that they're doing. What the text thinks is important to tell us is that they're studying all night long until the morning. And I want to say, we, oh, yes. Okay, great. You're right. Maybe they had an early Seder. Maybe they had a kid's Seder. Everyone went home. They didn't want to do the dishes. They stayed. Yeah. This is Marseille. This is a kid. They actually had a long span of history. And all of them were either in different parts of Israel at the same time. And by the Supreme Okay, great. So what you're telling us, and this is really important, this is just a story, right? It's not history. It's a story. And it's a text that our Haggadah, and whatever the origin of the story is, decides that it's what it wants to tell us at the beginning of the Seder, sort of a model of some sort. Okay, so this is one, one version of an ancient Seder that we, that we know about. There's another text also about an ancient theater, and it's found in the Tosefta, and this is the second source in your handout. And I'll read that one as well. Ma'aseh ve'laban gamriel u'skenim sh'ayu m'subin b'vnei b'vitus v'enzunin v'lod. So we have a story, another ma'aseh, of Rabban Gamliel, and this time it's the elders, and they're in someone's house, and what are they doing? V'hayu asukin b'vichot ha'pesach kol halayla. They were studying the laws of Pesach until the cocks crow, so until right before the morning dawn. And then they get up to go to the Beit Hamidrash in the morning, presumably for the Shema, but we don't know. So who's here? So the guys at Nebrach are not there, you're right. It's a totally different group of people. Great. Who else is there or not there? Yeah, so we're missing lots of people that we might imagine what might have been there. Or at least, for me, both of these stories describe ancient theaters, and we don't really have other descriptions, right? It's not that I pick these two among dozens of stories of ancient theaters. I pick these two because these are our earliest descriptions of ancient theaters. And the first story we read, the story of Rabbi Eliezer and his colleagues in Bnei Brak, are found in our Haggadot. And so it's a, an especially important story because it serves as an ancient exemplar of a Seder. Right? When we read about it at the start of our own Seders, it sets the scene for the remainder of the evening. It shapes our expectations. But there's a problem. I don't know about you, but for me, a Seder is a family event. It's a communal event. There are often many generations present. There are men, and there are women. There are aunts, and there are uncles. There are cousins, and friends, and guests. It's a diverse crowd. 
And it's decidedly not a group of rabbis sitting around a table analyzing the Pesach story or reviewing the laws of Pesach. That is, my experience of yearly seders does not match the description of the ancient seder that we just read and that we read each year at the beginning of our own seder. So in my talk tonight, I want to pose two questions. The first question is, how did the Pesach seder become a family affair? So this is a question that we'll answer historically and literarily, going back in time to our earliest biblical second temple and rabbinic sources about Pesach. And how do these sources conceive of the Pesach story, the rituals of the holiday, and Israel's obligation to observe them? And what we'll see is that the theme of family pervades these ancient texts, and sometimes in surprising ways. So in other words, what we'll discover is that these stories about rabbis in Bnei Brak or in Lod, studying diligently all night long in isolation, are themselves exceptional rather than the norm, even in their own historical context. And what I will argue is that there's a long history and good reasons for why the Pesach Seder is and has long been conceived of as a family event. But I'd also like to explore a second question, or at least I'd like to have that second question in the back of our minds as we look at the sources. And that second question bridges the ancient history with our own contemporary context which is a central theme of Pesach in any case, which is how can we build upon the idea that the holiday of Pesach, and especially the Pesach Seder, is centrally about family, right? About constructing, about maintaining family in order to create meaningful Pesach traditions for our own families. So this is a question that builds on the ancient sources, but that will require us to think expansively and creatively about why we celebrate Pesach and how the holiday can become an opportunity to think about what family is and what we'd like our families to strive to become. But first, I need to convince you that Pesach is a family affair. And I want to do that in three parts. I want to argue first that the Pesach story is a family story. Second, that the Pesach ritual is a family ritual, and that the Pesach obligation is a family obligation. So yes, Pesach is about remembering its Yat Mitzrayim. It's about finding freedom after slavery. It's about redemption. It's about abstaining from coming. It's about spring cleaning. It's about welcoming a brighter season. But Pesach is fundamentally also about family. It's about what a family can be, it's about participating in something together as a family, and it's about transmitting memories and values from generation to generation. And then there's a final part to my argument. If the Pesach family is a family affair, what kind of family do we have in mind? As will become clear, Pesach's family is not what we might call, more narrowly, a traditional family. But, as this is the central family from our tradition, we might actually call it a, or even the, traditional family, at least as biblical and rabbinic texts imagine it. Right? It's a family that includes many different mothers and parental figures and caregivers. It includes biological childbearing and adoption. It includes siblings, spouses, in-laws. It includes men and women and children. It includes complicated family structures. It consists of people from different backgrounds and ethnicities. It is not a family that is eternally happy or consistently happy or healthy or ideal. It's a family with feuds, with tragic losses, with disabilities, and also a family that figures out how to reunite, how to reconcile, and how to collaborate. And that is the text that we'll explore in a minute, biblical and rabbinic, offer a vision of a family that is radically inclusive. So the Pesach story itself, as it underlies our Pesach Seder practices, can serve as a model for us for what it means to be an inclusive family. And it's for that reason, in part, that as I created the sources for today, I tried to practice that inclusivity, to put a diverse set of sources into the source sheet that might speak in different ways to all of those people who come to our Seder in a few weeks. So let's get started. 
The image on the handout is from the Barcelona Haggadah, and it's just one of dozens of medieval Haggadot that depict a family sitting around a table celebrating the Pesach Seder. So let's go to point number one. The Pesach story is a family story. And I actually want to share with you four different paradigms of ways that we could think of the Pesach story as a family story. To give you some background, there are actually two intertwined holidays when we talk about Pesach. On the one hand, there's the Pesach, which is the first day of the holiday, and then there's a seven-day Chag HaMatzot. And I'm just pointing this out in the first two sources, four, three, and four, because when I'm talking about Pesach, what I really mean is the Seder, the first day of Pesach. And I don't actually have in mind the seven days of Chag HaMatzot when you abstain from leaven, but really about what is it that we're commemorating on the night of Pesach itself. So the first story about Pesach and family is, I would argue, the story of Yosef. And that is because Jacob and his family moves to Mitzrayim because of Yosef. And as we'll see, Yosef is the last person to leave Egypt. So what do I mean? The story of how Israel went to Mitzrayim begins Eletodot Yaakov. This is a story about the family of Yaakov. And then we hear about his favorite son, who goes out with the shepherds, who are his brothers. And you know the story well. They don't like him. His father favors him, makes him a special coat. And it says that the brothers noticed that their father loved Joseph the most. Right. So we already get this sense right away when we hear the story of Yaakov's family, that Yaakov's family is a complicated family. Yosef has a series of dreams. And I just want to focus on the second dream, which is a dream, the third line on the handout. And he tells his brother about the sun and the moon and the stars that are all bowing down to him. And the reason why I want to highlight this text in particular is because the Midrash, which is on the next page of your handout, number six, the Midrash tells us that Yaakov didn't believe Yosef's dream because Yosef's mother had already passed away and it was impossible for the sun and the moon to represent his mother and father in this dream that in the future they would bow down to him. And the Midrash says what they didn't know, what Yaakov didn't know, is that Bilhah raised Yosef like a mother. And so when Yosef had a story um, a dream in his mind that his mother and father and brothers would all bow down to him. He had Bilhah in mind, or God had Bilhah in mind that this would happen in the future. So he has this dream, and then he goes out to the field to be with his brothers to check on them, and they have this brilliant idea that they're going to sell him into slavery, and that's what they do, right? So it says, here comes this dreamer, Hinei Bar HaChalomot is coming, and then, that they sell Yosef to the Ishmaelim, and they, and they bring him to Egypt. And that's when he becomes a slave. So we have this family story of how he gets to Egypt. You all know what happens to Yosef in Egypt. And then we have a story of a family reunification. And so, there's a famine. Yaakov sends his sons to Egypt to get food. And then eventually, Yosef convinces his father that he should move to Egypt to relocate with his family in a new place, that life would be better there. And so we have this story. One interesting part of the reunification is that when Yosef asks the brothers to sit around the table before they know that he's their brother, it says that they were amazed. And the Midrash asks, why were they amazed? And so the Midrash says, well, because he put Yehuda at the head of the table because he said he's the king. And he put Reuben second because he's the firstborn. And then he says to Benjamin, you come sit close to me because your mother died in childbirth and I too don't have a mother. Right. So again, we see these like deep family familial bonds that it's not only that they're brothers, but that they share a mother and that their mother is no longer there that binds them together. 
And then we read that Yaakov comes to Mitzrayim. It says, this is source 8. Vayakom Yaakov mi'be'er sheva, v'yishvu b'nei Yisrael et, v'yasiu b'nei Yisrael et Yaakov avihem, v'et tapam, v'et nashihem, v'agalot, asher shalach Yaakov l'sechevo. So the whole family comes down to Egypt, and we read, Banav, ubnei banavito, bnotav, ubnot banav, v'chol zaro. Right? So as opposed to the Seder we started with, this actually lists the sons and the daughters and the children of those people, and they all come down to Mitzrayim. And then it says all of the, the people in Yaakov's family come down to Mitzrayim. This is an odd place to start the Pesach story, and it's not typically the place that we start when we talk about the Pesach story. But I think it's a really important one of an individual who's enslaved in Egypt, and the whole family comes down and then becomes slaves. And it's exactly at the moment when the Israelites are free from slavery, and they leave Egypt, and who's the last person they take with them? They take Joseph's bones. So it's the slavery of the individual going down, and then it's the emancipation that then brings that person back up with the Israelites. And that, I think, is the first family story. It's a family story that's about family strife, about reunification, and then reconciliation. The second story is the story of the Israelites' oppression in Mitzrayim, and that's on page four. The first way that we hear in the text that B'nai Israel are oppressed in Egypt is that B'nai Israel are not allowed to keep their babies, right? And this, I think, is not accidental. The way that Haro oppresses the Jews in addition to enslaving them is limiting the ability to have children, and in particular, to have male children. And so here is how the story starts. So Paro tells the Hebrew midwives, we'll get there, but their names are Shifra and Tua. He says, if there is a boy, kill him, and if it's a girl, let her live. And here is a story where the way that Paro is oppressing B'nai Israel is specifically in the context of expanding a family. We read in the story that the midwives didn't listen to Paro, and they were rewarded. And this is the bold part of Source 10. So the mi'aldot, the midwives, feared God. What is the reward that the midwives receive for not killing the babies? Batim, meaning family. Right? So there's this equilibrium that's created. They allow the children to live, and they get families or dynasties themselves. And the Midrash asks, first of all, who are these Meyaldot, and what does it mean that they were given houses? So in source number 11, the Bavli and there are other Midrashim that say the same thing. He said there's a dispute between Rav and Shmuel. Who are these Meyaldot? Rav says that it is meaning one opinion is that it was a mother and a daughter team of midwives. And the other says, No, it wasn't a mother and daughter. It was a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And who are these people? So according to the first opinion, it was Yocheved and Miriam. And according to the second opinion, it was Yocheved and Elisheba. And so what does it mean that these women who were midwives and who saved these Jewish babies were given batim, were given houses. So if you look at source 12, first we have to figure out how do we connect the midwives with this story. And there's a midrash that Yocheved was conceived in Canaan and she was born in Egypt. So she becomes this figure that connects the old country with the new country and freedom with liberation. And she's there are also midrashim that imagine that Yochavid also ends up entering Canaan on the other end of the story, right? So she's this figure that lives a really long life and mediates between them. And the question is, what kind of house was she given? 
and Midrash Mishlei connects the verse in Exodus about Batim to Mishlei, Chochmat Nashim Bantabita, that the wisdom of a woman builds her house. And it says, who is this? Like, about whom is this, this line? And it's about Yocheved, Shehe'emidash Roshat Tzadikim, right? So Yocheved, because she saved these Israelite children, was then rewarded by having three descendants, three children, who were Tzadikim. And who are those? Moshe, Ahamon, and Miriam. Shloshtam, Zahu, Lishemeshet Yisrael. All three of them were Zochet to lead Israel, Moshe with the man, Aharon with the Ananei HaKavod, with the clouds of glory, and Miriam with the well. And also, they were three prophets, right? So we have this really nice parallel. And then the question is, well, okay, so we understand Yocheved having these three children. What about Elisheva? So who is Elisheva? Yes, so Elisheva is Elisheva Bat Aminadav. She's Nachshon's sister and Aharon's wife. And so she too, the Midrash talks about her as a matriarch with a very distinguished family lineage. Beoto Hayom, meaning the day that Nachshon, her brother, brings the first dedication offering in the tabernacle, Rata Elisheva Bat Aminadav, Elisheva sees in prophecy the day that they're dedicating the tabernacle, the Mishkan, that she has four smachot, four reasons to be happy, and one sorrow. So so she sees that her brother-in-law Moshe is the king, right? He's the leader. Her brother is the prince. So Nachshon becomes the prince. Her husband becomes the Kohen Gadol, and two of her sons become the vice Kohanim. And then she sees the Evel of losing two of her children. And so here we have this other figure, right? Even if you go according to the opinion of Shmuel, the other midwife story that it's a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law who are a team together, both the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law become these matriarchs of distinguished families. And so in this second story, what we have is a story of oppression and redemption, but it's an interesting one, right? The story is oppression of oppressing these families of not being able to keep their children alive, and then the redemption of the reward of having distinguished families at the end of the day. And then we zoom in to the very specific family story, and that's the family story of Moshe and Yocheved and Miriam, and that's a much more familiar story. And that's a story in which, and this is according to the Midrash, and this is in the Bavli, in Masechet Sota, there is a Midrash that goes as follows. That when Paro made the decree forcing the sons to be killed, Amram divorces his wife Yocheved because he doesn't want to lose children unnecessarily. And his daughter Miriam comes and tells him, you're worse than Paro. Paro only wants to kill the boys and you're preventing all life from being born. And Amram then decides, you're right. And he reunites with his wife. And then, it's a complicated story, but Miriam Yocheved realizes she was pregnant from before they separated and has Moshe. And then the story continues, and it continues to when they have to then abandon Moshe in the water. And in different versions of the Midrash, either Yocheved says, or her husband says, now what, Miriam? Like, what happened to your prophecy? You were wrong. And then Miriam goes out and looks from afar to see what happens to Moshe. And in her mind, she asks herself, I need to know what's going to happen with my prophecy. Right? So we have this story of a family story, and it involves parents, and it involves siblings, and it involves this child. And as we see, right, it's this family effort that then, to the redemption, what is very interesting to me about this story is that Paro's daughter adopts Moshe. And what we see here is this really interesting situation in Vayikra Rabbah, 
Rabbi Yoshua says about a pasuk in Divrei Hayamim, these are the children of Bitya, who was Batya, who was God's daughter. And it says, who is this? And it says, this is Paro's daughter, who adopted Moshe when she saw him in Mitzrayim. And it says that God tells her, what does God tell her? God tells Bitya, Moshe lo haya bnech, Moshe was not your son, but you called him your son. At lo ba, lo at biti, vani kore otah biti. You are not really my daughter, but I am calling you my daughter. And so what we see here is this story of Moshe being raised in the house of the king of Egypt, and Paro's daughter, the king of Egypt's daughter, is considered God's daughter, right? And so we have this reversal in the family stories. And then I just want to point out, thinking about sort of collaboration, what we really get is three siblings who lead B'nai Israel in this period, right? So we have Moshe, who can't speak easily, and his brother, who fills in his words, right? So they literally are this pair with Miriam. And we read in Micha, right, that it says, I, God, brought you out of Mitzrayim and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I set before you Moshe, Aharon, and Miriam. Right, so what we get is, it's really this family effort. So we have a story of Yosef, who comes down with his family and leaves with the family. We have this oppression of family expansion and this reward of family expansion. And then we have the story of family collaboration on a personal level and then playing out on a national level. The next family story in the Pesach story is about the Pesach night itself. So here I want to turn to source 25, and it's a passage that we're going to return to in a moment. But it says, Vayomer Hashem el Mosheb el Aaron, so God speaks to Moses and Aaron in Egypt saying, and this is when the Israelites are told that they need to get all of the supplies they need for a Korban Pesach, and they're given all the instructions for Pesach. And this is, I want you to listen to the language here. If you look at the second line, it says, Speak to all of Israel. On the 10th of this month, every person should take a set for their family unit. Right? So here we have this family unit again. We have the word bite again. So this is starting to become a theme, this idea of family. Right, so if you have a family that's too small for one animal, so then you go to the neighbors, and it's not that you find anyone, right? What do you go and do? You go to the person who's right next to your house, right? Your adjoining house, and you join forces to be able to consume this one animal. And then if you skip one line, what do you have to do? You have to put the blood on the mezuzah and the mashkof, right? On the doorposts and the lintel. Al-habatim, right? So you mark your actual house in which you eat. So at the same time that the Israelites are being told Take a set, go to your house if you need to bring your neighbors as well, and mark your house. That's exactly the time when God is going to go through the neighborhood and going to kill the firstborn son of the Egyptians. Meaning that the last plague of Makat Becholot is not just this devastating mass death of one person in each family. It's the person who dies in each family is the heir, right? The person who's meant to be the continuation of that family in the next generation. And so it's exactly when the Israelites are being saved 
for their next generation, that the Egyptians are being destroyed specifically with their sons and with their firstborn sons. And that, I think, is not lost on this text. And it says, Right? It's passing over the homes. And so you see these two homes, a simultaneous story. It's almost like a split screen. On the one hand, one family is being saved, and on the other hand, the other family is being destroyed. And in the way that the text is constructed, it keeps on going back and forth between the Israelite and the Egyptian homes. And it really sort of brings home this point in the rhetoric of the text. And then the text says, this is the last two page, two words on page 7. What is the plague? Paro and his servants and all of Egypt let out a very big cry because there is not a house, there is not a family that didn't have a tragedy, right? So we get this really, this duel that, that the redemption and the suffering are both very familial losses. I put on the handout in Source 27, the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees is a text from the 2nd century BCE. And in the way that it constructs its retelling of this story, really sort of highlights this dual family narrative. It says, for on this night, the beginning of the festival and the beginning of the joy, you were eating the Passover in Egypt when all the powers of Mastema had been let loose to slay all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Paro to the firstborn of the captive maidservant in the mill and to the cattle. Actually, to me, it's interesting that Jubilees adds in the women who get killed here, and it does that sort of consistently with the biblical stories. And this is the sign which the Lord gave them in every house on the lintels of which they saw the blood of the lamb of the firstborn. Into that house they should not enter to slay. And then if you skip to the third to last line, and the plague was very grievous in Egypt, and there was no house in Egypt where there was not one dead and weeping and lamentation, and all Israel was eating the flesh of the Paschal lamb and drinking the wine and lauding and blessing and giving thanks to the Lord God of their fathers. Right? So we get this in the same sentence right next to each other, this, there's no house that isn't suffering, and then right next door, there's feasting and there's celebration. The Jews out of suffering cry out to God, and God's answer is to make their oppressors cry out, out of suffering. Yeah. And then there's sort of the cap of this story, which is source 26, in which we are told that, that the firstborns of B'nai Israel need to consecrate themselves to God. So all firstborns that were saved are consecrated to God. And then it says, Vayomel Moshe el ha'am, and Moshe says to the nation, Zachol et hayom hazeh asher yatsatem mimitzayim mibit avadim. So here again, it's a choice of words. Remember that you left the house of slavery, meaning, again, this sort of familial unit that's the metaphor being used. So we have this additional story, right? A story about the night of Pesach and these two contrasting family experiences. And then there's the last family story. And that is a family story that brings together many generations of people into a single story. And the memory and the merit of previous generations into the Pesach story. So here we have on page 9, this line that seemed like a throwaway line at the very beginning of the story when God first commands the Israelites to take an animal to offer it as a sacrifice. It just says, and God spoke to Moshe and Aharon in Eretz Mitzrayim, saying, the Midrash, the Mechotah de Rabbi Ishmael, actually devotes many, many pages to this one line. Every single element is analyzed. And when they get to Be'eretz Mitzrayim, that God spoke to Moshe and Aharon in Eretz Mitzrayim, the rabbis ask, wait a second, we thought that Nebuah, prophecy, only happens in Eretz Israel. How is it possible that God spoke to Moshe and Aharon outside of Israel? And their answer is, 
The only reason why God spoke to the two brothers in Mitzrayim was because of ancestral merit. And the quote that it gives is about Rachel and the idea that Rachel is the maternal figure who stands on the root outside of Canaan as the Israelites leave, and she's the first one who intercedes on their behalf. It's her schut, and what is her schut? Why did she accrue all of this merit? So according to Midrashim about Rachel, so she dies in childbirth, so first of all, we have another case, right, of a family loss. And she allows her sister to marry Yaakov without protesting, right? So she has this familial sacrifice or two sacrifices. And it's on that merit that she did it faithfully that she then is able to intercede on Israel's behalf at various points in history. So that's the first God speaks to Moshe and Aaron only because of this ancestor mother that they have. And as we'll see, the whole Pesach story can be told and is told in rabbinic sources as being precipitated by ancestors rather than by the people themselves. So if you look at source 29, is what we just talked about. Source 30 is another pasuk. It's from Shmot, and this is the line, V'haya hadam lachem le'ot that the blood of this Pesach sacrifice is going to be a sign on your houses. And God says, I'm going to see the blood. And the Midrash asks, what blood is God going to see? And the Mechilza again answers, when I see the blood on the doors, I'm going to remember the binding of Isaac. And what's so interesting, so first of all, the verb to see appears throughout the Akedah. So, for example, it says that Abraham looked up and he saw the place from afar, that Abraham tells his son, don't worry, God will see the set for the Olah himself. And then he named the place Hashem Yira'eh. So the Midrash says, what will God see when God sees the blood? God's going to see the other time when so many verbs to see were used, the Akedah, right? And so God's going to remember what? What's the Akedah all about? The merit was that a father was willing to sacrifice his son. And so we have these two stories. We have the mother who is willing to die for her son, and we have the father who is willing to give up his son. And that's the merit that then is able to redeem Israel from Egypt. And it goes further. The Midrash also says the line in Shmot, So right when the Israelites are at the Yamsuf and they need to cross and Moshe starts praying, he's told, like, just lift your staff. And what happens? The waters split. And the Midrash, again in the Mechilta, says there's another time that the Bible uses the word Vayivaka. And that is when Abraham chops the wood for the offering of his son. And here is a case where Abraham was so willing to split the wood in order to sacrifice his son that on that merit, the sea split open, I think part of the Seder ritual is about acknowledging the problem, right? Like that we spill the wine to say there's something really uncomfortable about it and maybe it doesn't always have to be that way. But yes, we'll come back to it because it really is all of these reversal stories. Also, the Purim story is really problematic because we don't necessarily want what is done to us done to other people. But that's really what the stories are about here. So just to end this story, Moshe stands in front of the water and he wants to pass and the Egyptians are chasing the, the Israelites and he starts praying and the Midrash says, that God tells him, what are you doing praying? Just lift your hand. And as soon as Moshe lifts his staff, what does God see? God sees the knife 
that Abraham is holding in order to slaughter his son. Right, so we have this other sort of family story, and that is a story about previous generations and how they impact the present in this redemptive story, right? So it's the suffering of these previous generations that ends up being redemptive for current generations. And then I added another source, source number 34, which is a poem about Miriam who sings a song when they cross the sea. What I love about this song is that it puts Rachel at the very beginning of this redemptive story where she causes God to prophesy to Moshe and Aharon. And then we have Miriam, who at the end of it then has a song that she sings, and it's a song rather than a word of peace. So this gets a little bit to your question that we also, I think, the way that the Midrashim sort of rewrite these stories in ways to help them understand, we can also sort of try to work with the stories to try to figure out other ways they might end. So that's the first part, and I promise the second and the third part will be much, much shorter. But these numerous four or five family stories that are really a part of what the night of Pesach is all about. So when we think about how did Pesach become a family affair, one of the things I want to argue is that the Pesach story fundamentally is about families in all of these configurations. And then the family, the Pesach ritual is a family ritual. So we won't look at the biblical sources that say, take one set for each family, right? Do this as a family. But I did want to show you that in Second Temple sources, so I brought two Philo of Alexandria, who was a diaspora Jew, and Josephus, who spent the first half of his life in Jerusalem and in that region, both describe the Pesach sacrifices as sacrifices that included men and women. And so I think it's interesting. They don't mention this all the time. Right? They weren't feminists. But here we have Philo says, in this festival, many animals are slaughtered, but it's done by the whole people, old and young alike. And then it says, on this occasion, the whole nation performs the sacred rites and acts as priests with pure hands and complete immunity, right? So there's the idea that it's all the families are participating. And Josephus also talks about all the people streamed from their villages to the city and celebrated the festival in a state of purity with their wives and their children, right? So it's important enough to these sources that they mention that it's a family ritual. And the Pesach Seder as well, so in contrast to the two stories that we started with, that it seems as though the rabbis are doing this on their own, what I want to suggest is that those are actually exceptional cases that are not ideal, but they're busy evid. They're, if you need to do it just among yourselves, do it. And we see that in our earliest rabbinic sources, in Mishnah Sachim, for example, we have already the questions, the Manishtana, and in the Mishnah, we already hear that it's the son who has to ask the father. So here it says, Mazazo Koscheni, so you pour the second glass. Vechan haben sho'el aviv, and the son asks the father. And then it says, if the son isn't able to ask, then the father asks on behalf of the son. And then the father answers the question according to the ability of the child. And so here already in the earliest rabbinic text, that imagine a Seder where you are sitting and learning together rather than sacrificing, we have this dimension of a child. And then in Tosefta Sachim, we read as follows. It's a person's responsibility, or it's a mitzvah, to make their children and all of the members of their household happy on the holiday. And then the Tosefta asks, like, how do you make people happy? And they're like, well, with wine. And then they say, well, wait a second. Does the same thing make everyone happy? And they say, no, you make the women happy with what makes the women happy and the children happy with what makes the children happy. And there's a lot of discussion in rabbinic sources about, like, well, what makes women happy? So I have the answers for you guys. If your women are from Babylonia, they liked colored garments. And if they live in Eretz Israel, they like ironed linen garments. 
The idea here, of course, right, is that everyone has to be misamah. Everyone has to participate in the joy of the holiday. And so if you have wine for the men, you might have to go shopping for the women and so on. So these tropes about stereotypes about women liking shopping are actually very old, and we see them also in Roman sources. And then it's not only that you have to make everyone happy, but in the Tosefta, we read that it includes sons and daughters, which I just think is interesting, that if you lead your children in these prayers, that is something you have to say it also because they're minors. But what I think is interesting is it's banim and banot, and that's very rare in these sources. And then we get an ancient tradition. It's either a game or it's like a kid's meal. It says, So I don't exactly know what this verb means. You either grab matzah for your minors. It could, some interpreters talk about it as, yeah, you throw it back and forth. You make it into a game. Right, so here we have, like, in order to keep your kids awake at the Seder, like, make it fun, make it interesting. And you can use the matzah to do it. And it says, even if you haven't eaten, even a crumb, and even if you didn't dip anything but your maror, you can do this, right? You can break a piece of the matzah and you could play with your children in order to keep them awake. It's in the Tosefta, so it's in the same chapter as this seder where the men are studying until the morning. What we didn't hear about is the kids at the table. If you look at source 42, we get a much more elaborate set of stories about different rabbis and how they entertain their children at the Pesach seder. And it says that there's a Maaseh Rabbi Akiva who distributed parched ears of corn and nuts to the children on the eve of Pesach so that nobody fell asleep. And even Rabbi Akiva, the only day that he would come home early from the Beit HaMidrash is Yom Kippur and Pesach to make sure that he had like enough time to arrange things to keep his kids awake and so that they wouldn't start so late at night. So I want to go back to the original story of the, about the Pesach Sedel in the Tosa. I told you that it was a story about how these rabbis went to Lod. What I didn't tell you is the first half of what comes before it. And that's a rule that says that someone is obligated to study the laws of Pesach all night. Then it says, if there's no one else, even with his son, even by himself, even with the students. And then it's like, and there's a story of Rabban Gamliel with the elders and they were hiding out. Maybe no one wanted to be with them. Or maybe their families were far. We don't know why. But it doesn't seem like the ideal at least it seems like one option, or maybe even in a situation where they couldn't do it any other way, this is what they did. But it comes right after this rule. There is this communal aspect, and that's really important. And what I want to sort of point out is there are many ways that we could think about this communal aspect, and even the texts that describe these seders only with rabbis, actually the laws they have conceive of a seder that has children and that has women, and that is a family seder. The last is texts that are familiar to you, which is the text of the obligation to keep Pesach. And there are two dimensions to this, and I'll just summarize it. On the one hand, we have this idea that you're supposed to do this not only the night when you are redeemed from Egypt, but for generations, the dorot, the dorotechem, for you and your sons until forever. And then it says, Your children will come and say, what is this all about? And you're supposed to explain to them that God passed over the houses for generations. So over and over and over again in this one chapter, we keep hearing for generations, for generations, for generations. So also in the obligation, there's this idea of familial continuity. And then there's the second half, which is this idea of telling your children, again, forever, for continuity. Like tomorrow, your son or your child will ask you, and here is what you should answer. And what's the answer? 
the answer is that God redeemed us so here we have from the house of slavery. So again, in the obligation itself, it's to do it in future generations, and it's also to pass on the narrative to your children. And so this idea of Pesach, that the Pesach story, the Pesach ritual, and the Pesach obligation is about family, I think allows us to think more carefully about how we conceive of what family is, how we engage each member of our extended families, in our seders. One of the ideas, Sharon Adesfel talks about the idea that the Jewish tradition teaches us about structure and spontaneity at the same time. That the seder gives us a structure, but within that structure allows us to be spontaneous. And she writes about how it's about remembering, but about imagination as well. And this sort of gets back to this question of the seder in Bnei Brak or in Lod. We have lots of hypotheses, right? Well, they were in strife, or it was hard times. Maybe we have no historical evidence that these satyrs actually happened. After all, they're just maxim. And so it also allows us, all these texts and traditions allow us also to sort of imagine different pasts and also different futures. And so I brought one such imagining it is said that four women gathered in Bnei Brak, reclining on cushions, relating the exodus from Egypt. They are our foremothers, Rachel, who I think is actually Rabbi Akiva's wife here and not Rachel Imenu, Burya, Ima Shalom, who was a descendant of the house of Hillel, and her niece, the daughter of Rabban Gamliel. Our mother spent the night of vigil, meaning Leil Shimulim, learning their history until their daughters came to them and said, Mothers, the time has come to say the morning Shema. So what I'm not imagining is for us to all go our separate ways and have our separate seders. Only that we have all these opportunities to sort of reimagine what a seder is or can be, what these stories can and can't, and the possibilities of these stories. And so I, by way of conclusion, I just want to offer some ways of thinking about these ideas practically as you start preparing for your seders in the coming weeks. The first is that being with family helps us learn about the Pesach story in new ways because it's a story about family, right? If the point was to learn as much Torah as possible, we could do it indeed in a yeshiva, but we don't, right? We do it as family units, and there's something that we can learn when we think about the people with whom we're learning. The second is that it's not only about family, right? It extends beyond family to those we invite, to the poor, to the guests. And so to really take a, a really expansive view of what family and then friends also looks like. And as we plan our seders, we should also make sure that everyone around our table is included and valued as an individual and to deliberately construct a seder where everyone's needs are, are taken into consideration, right? So if the Tosefta can imagine that Rabbi Akiva comes home early from the yeshiva to prepare the matzot to play with, or that you can even break a matzah to play with your kid so that they are part of the seder. Think about what that means to make sure that everyone needs around the table are met so that they can participate in the learning and in the experience. And then the last idea is that it's an opportunity to connect previous generations to our generation, and also to develop and articulate our values as families and to share them with our friends and those in our theaters. And here, I want to point to an idea that Sharon Richter writes about in the Seder Hands-On, where she writes, we, meaning her family, want Magid, the story of God's intervention, redemption, and involvement in our lives, to be the favorite and most memorable part of the Seder we consider the following. What are the values that we would like to emphasize? Do we have adequate materials accessible to review and prepare? How can we best meet the needs of our six-year-old daughter, our 27-year-old nephew? When we focus primarily on making the Seder meaningful and memorable, the preparation for Pesach takes on an entirely new meaning. By transmitting core values and beliefs in a joyous and positive environment, the taste of Vati Koman lasts long after the Seder is over. And today, I would argue that there's not necessarily a, a strong distinction, or maybe not even a distinction at all, between the Seder in Bnei Brak and everyone else's Seder. 
right? When everyone has access to Torah study, right? When Torah study is made egalitarian and accessible to all of us, which Drisha makes possible, then everyone can participate in the kind of Seder in Bnei Brak in a new way. And so it's not choosing Torah study or studying with family or being with family. The challenge is to weave those two values together through the Pesach Seder. And it's on that note that I want to wish all of you a Pesach Kashel Samach.